The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. Happy May Day to my fellow proletarians in the ringing words of Karl Marx. Non-essential workers of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains. And happy May Day in the darling buds of May, prancing round the maypole with a lot of Morris dancers waving handkerchief scents too. Sir Thomas Beecham once said, one should try everything once except incest and Morris dancing. I'm ashamed to say that, yes, I once tried... No, no, not incest. It's worse than that. I once tried Morris dancing. And now it's time for me to take the floor and see how well I've done. Right knee, left foot, left knee, right hand. Yeah. And at that point I entered into it so vigorously that my microphone flew off and hit some other poor Morris dancer in the cheek. I've never had the urge to do Morris dancing since, except now that it's forbidden, I yearn to stick a maypole in the middle of Times Square and start a prancing. Oh, ho, ho, ho. May Day Weekend 2020. From my house arrest to yours. It's your Stein Show Corona Copia. Everybody was kung flu fighting. But let's put that aside and up with Joe Biden. Good news, he's out of hiding. Okay, that's that's enough of that. We did a full chorus, was it uh, last week, Wednesday? Something like that. Ladies and gentlemen, the presumptive Democrat nominee for president, Joe Biden. The administration has been critical of the way you, were, when you were vice president, were dealing with, with China. I guess I want to ask you, do you think that this is is going to, in fact, be a major issue? And are you vulnerable on this issue at all because of your son's business dealings in in China? No, I don't believe so at all. My son's business dealings were not anything with everybody that he's talking about, not even remotely, number one. Nothing to do with me, number two. Got that? Let me repeat the former vice president's answer. Quote, my son's business dealings were not anything where everybody that he's talking about, not even remotely, number one, unquote. And we've got six months to go till election day. As I said to Tucker months back, the consultant industrial complex was furious about the 2016 election because it was a repudiation of everything the consultant industrial complex stands for. Huge expenditures, pointless ads, excess entourages and multi-million dollar consultant fees. Instead, the Trump campaign was all candidate and no minders. And so we now have the precise opposite of that. The Biden campaign is all minders and no candidate. And judging by that poll showing he's eight points up in Pennsylvania, it seems to be working. As long as you can keep him off the stump 
and threatening to step outside and punch out the lights of petite coeds, uh, and instead confine him to doing softball interviews answered in randomly tossed word salad. We're getting used to the gibberish. Uh, you get the feeling that the American people are starting to find it kind of endearing. He's Mel Brooks as Governor Lepedomaine in Blazing Saddles. And after the election, we'll maybe figure out who Hedley Lamar is in this story. That's why his Morning Joe interview with Mika Brzezinski was a disaster. This wasn't gibberish, Joe. This wasn't the Mad Libs kid. It was a guy faced with real and disturbing questions and sharply put questions, and struggling to remember the rehearsed deflections the minders had given him before they shoved him out on stage. Three decades back, when the Senate was an old boys club with new tricks like waitress sandwiches, Google it, Joe Biden is alleged to have sexually assaulted a young staffer called Tara Reid. But suddenly, the party that told us to, quote, believe all women when it comes to Brett Kavanaugh in high school doesn't want to believe all women when it comes to Joe Biden on the cusp of his third decade in the United States Senate. Mr. Vice President... I don't know what else uh, I can say to you. Well, uh, I'm going to try and ask many different ways. Uh, Stacey Abrams uh, said during the Kavanaugh hearings, I believe women, I believe survivors of assault should be supported and their voices heard. Kirsten Gillibrand tweeted, do we believe women? Do we give them the opportunity to tell their story? We must be a country that says yes every time. They now both support you. Nancy Pelosi falls into this category too, as well as many other leaders in the Democratic Party. Are women to be believed? Are women to be believed unless it pertains to you? Look, women are to be believed given the benefit of the doubt. If they come forward and say something that is that they said happened to them, they should start off with the presumption they're telling the truth. Then you have to look at the circumstances and the facts. And the facts in this case do not exist. They never happened. And there's so many inconsistencies in what has been said in this case. So you just look at the facts. And I assure you, it did not happen. Period. Period. But why is it different now? Do you regret what you said during the Kavanaugh hearings? What I said during the Kavanaugh hearings was that she had a right to be heard. And the fact that she came forward, the presumption would be she's telling the truth unless it's proved she wasn't telling the truth. Or not proved, Are unless it's clear from the facts surrounding it, it's not the truth. As we... Uh, well, this is a very... I'm sorry. Go ahead. Please. Biden has his tick of saying period a lot to sound forceful and emphatic. Sometimes he says period, period. Period, period, period. Uh, would be an ellipsis, dot, 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 or a slow fade-out. He's one slice short of a waitress sandwich. Right now, there's no presidential campaign trail which suits Biden's minders just fine, particularly with Tara Reid and other accusers out there. But Biden's Hedley Lamars figure they can pull this off. Six months to go. As I said, last time round, the Trump campaign was all candidate, no minders. The Biden campaign is all minders, no candidate. If they can pull this off, the consultant industrial complex will never need a real candidate again.
Let's catch up with some corona medical updates after Mika's account of what Joe Biden is alleged to have done to Tara Reid. I need a little palate cleanser. Unfortunately, here's Islamic medical specialist Mehdi Sabili with the cure for what ails you, a foaming pint pot of camel urine. And as Dr. Sabili says, if you want to ward off COVID-19, it's best to drink it warm and steaming direct from the camel. <laughs> Cheers! Every day is hump day when you're in the saloon bar at the incontinent dromedary. The prophet himself drank camel urine, peace be upon him, and a pint of peace wouldn't go amiss right now, would it? As you know, a few weeks ago I mentioned one of Dr. Sabili's rival Islamic medical specialists, an Iranian imam who recommends curing the coronavirus by inserting perfumed oils into the anus. And if your arm's a bit stiff and you can't quite reach, the imam is actually happy to make house calls. Oh, please, don't titter. It's strictly for medicinal purposes. In, uh, in the non-Islamic part of the world, the lockdown is being eased. And by eased, I mean tightened. Kansas City, Missouri will be reopening in a fortnight's time. So you're free to go to a restaurant, as long as you don't mind the authorities having your name, address, telephone, email and other pertinent information. Uh, that goes for all non-essential activity, including church, because God, it turns out, has been running a non-essential business these last several millennia. This is under the Kansas City government's 10-10-10 rule, which requires non-essential businesses, such as a massage parlour or a church, to be limited either to 10% of capacity or to 10 people, whichever is the greater. And if you're there for more than 10 minutes, as you would be at a restaurant or at a funeral, you're obligated to provide your name, address and all the rest to the government. As you know, if you followed my serialization of Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year, no one has come up with anything new since 1665. Quarantine, social distancing, masks, they did all that way back when. The only new addition to these ancient mitigation techniques is the 24-7 panopticon state surveilling the citizens and every aspect of their lives ever more totally. Unless you're an illegal immigrant, of course. And now, from the land where everything is policed except crime... Good evening, all. It's your Brit Wanker Copper of the Day. The British police, the British police. They can't keep stabbers off the street. They can't keep Muslim child-rape grooming gangs off the street. But hallelujah, they can keep string quartets off the street. That's a world-class violinist right there, Raphael Toz of the uh, Allegri Quartet. 
he's playing with his family and he's playing on a violin that's over 400 years old made by Giovanni Paolo Maggini who, uh, oh what do you know, was one of over one million people to die in another pandemic, the Great Plague of Milan and surrounding areas from 1629 to 1631. And uh, that uh, violin of Signor Maggini survived the Great Plague of Milan to wind up front and center in the great pandemic of 2020. Raphael is playing it with his missus on the viola, his daughter on second violin, and his son on cello in their front garden in a quiet residential street in Bayswater, West London. Uh, They've been doing this since the lockdown began when a neighbour asked if they could play something for a little old lady living alone in an upstairs flat. But the rest of the street seemed to appreciate it too, quite a lot actually, so they made it a regular event. Uh, I... I miss music, which has been totally killed by the lockdown. I'm not into 57 rockers and hippity hoppers in their man caves, Skyping in a a mass self-isolated chorus of Imagine. Music is about playing together and responding and reacting to your co-players. So this Bayswater family is a rare moment of real music in a world bereft of it. So what did the Metropolitan Police do? Shut it down on the grounds that, like the Pied Piper of Hamlin, it might possibly be incentivizing people to leave their homes and follow in the direction of the beguiling strains. Unlike many of our Brit wanker coppers in this series, this plod understands that sending a squad car of officers to shut down a string quartet is faintly risible. But he does it anyway. So it's gathering outside and just keeps causing it happen. I know, yeah. no, 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 I'm not, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I don't enjoy this part of the job, but obviously it's going to keep causing the street to be gathering. It's, it's going to, I'm not, I'm not here to find you, don't worry, but I mean, it's going to result in, because the whole street can't be doing it lines. Look, I get what you're doing, it's lovely, it's good music. Yeah. I am sorry. Okay. But obviously it's going to keep causing the street to block. And so a small moment of beauty in an arid and cheerless land of lockdown dies. And notice that uh, nobody in the string quartet nor any of those listeners applauding uh, from around the street actually uh, intervened with the police and told them to take a hike. Their last piece of music was the Shostakovich Fourth String Quartet, which Mr. Toz explained by way of introduction was written by the composer when he was out of favor with Stalin and feared arrest. So they started playing it on an English street only to have it broken up, not by Stalin's NKVD, but by Her Majesty's Constabulary. Your Brit wanker coppers of the day, the String Quartet Special Branch of the Metropolitan Police. Escape the quarantine by delving into fantastic fiction chosen and read by Mark Stein himself in Stein's Tales for Our Time. Thrillers, mysteries, science fiction, romance, tales that transcend genre, everything from classics to titles hidden in the upper shelves. Mark Stein Club members can listen to the full catalog of nearly three dozen tales for our time. Hear them all by going to www.steinonline.com slash T-F-O-T. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. Three centuries ago this spring, Matthew Pryor published his poems on several occasions. 
I came to it a couple of centuries later and rather circuitously one of my most treasured books uh, from my late teenage years was Ira Gershwin's idiosyncratic annotated autobiographical anthology of his songs lyrics on several occasions. Uh, the title uh, sounds like an allusion to some earlier work. I got that it was an allusion, but didn't know what it was alluding to until I discovered a couple of years later that Ira, while writing his book, had stumbled across a volume of Matthew Pryor's in his library, Poems on Several Occasions. If you have a first edition, it will say 1718 on the frontispiece, but they didn't actually get it to the public and available for purchase until two years later, 1720, which is why we're celebrating its tricentenary today. At any rate, thank you, Ira Gershwin, for leading me to Matthew Pryor, poet, whom I realise, after dipping into the book, that I'd already encountered in history class as Matthew Pryor, diplomat. Uh, Mr. Pryor was a negotiator of the Treaty of Utrecht, preventing the merging of the thrones of Spain and France, which would have created a destabilizing European superpower. We um, today live with the consequences of that treaty because Philip of France took the Spanish throne, whereon his Bourbon heirs sit to this day, while the Bourbons are long gone from the corridors of power in France. Matthew Pryor was so directly associated with the Treaty of Utrecht that in Great Britain, uh, for which then new polity, this was one of the first international treaties, in Great Britain it was known as Matt's Peace. So from Matt's Peace to Matt's Poem, from poems on several occasions. Um, among other things, uh, I'm being discreet and tactful about this. The coronavirus has totally kiboshed television. No disrespect to any old friends, but I find a lot of it totally unwatchable. Uh, the once glamorous, beautifully lit, beautifully quaffed, beautifully made-up anchor now skyping it in from the rec room, gaunt, wan, sallow, baggy-eyed and greasy-haired. And that's just the men which is why I'm glad to be off the grid at Ice Station EIB for the duration. Uh, but, it, uh, but it reminded me that Matthew Pryor had a rather pithy poem on the subject, first published in poems on several occasions in 1720 by Matthew Pryor, Phyllis's Age. How old may Phyllis be, you ask, whose beauty thus all hearts engages? To answer is no easy task, for she has really two ages. Stiff in brocade and pinched in stays, her patches paint and jewels on, all day let envy view her face, and Phyllis is but twenty-one. Paint patches jewels laid aside, at night astronomers agree the evening has the day belied, and Phyllis is some 43. A poem from me to you, from Matthew Pryor's Poems on Several Occasions, celebrating its tricentenary this very spring. The evening has the day belied, and in hopes of happy reunion, happy reunion one day with my dear hair and makeup ladies of yesteryear, I long for a bright new morn. Mark's mailbox is on the air. CD 
writes from the beautiful Australian state of Victoria. Mark, why do you despise an ad hominem directed at, say, Lindsay Shepherd, but can call Dr Fauci a midget? And a midget virologist, are the two terms related? An Aussie club member just trying for an Aussie fair go, says CD. Well, I take your point. My old friend Toby Young has a column in this week's Spectator on tonal registers, which is not irrelevant here. Uh, I was doing that midget virologist thing in an imaginative voice, as it were, of a campaign consultant trying to explain the political realities here. Trump has run as the big guy, the tough guy, the master of the art of the deal, uh, the guy who grabs your whatnot, just uh, not another whatnot getting grabbed by whoever's around him. And some of his biggest supporters on talk radio are now arguing that he's been suckered by this guy most of the country's never heard of. And so they switch on the TV and there's this huge hulking fellow at the podium, Trump, and Trump then hands over to a fellow whose comparative stature is such that the podium mic obscures his face and he waves his hands above as he talks to try and get at least some of his body parts above the podium. The physical reality is also the political reality. Trump's the big boss, Fauci, is a very minor employee. You can't go to the people arguing that the economic devastation is because Trump got suckered by Fauci, and so that's the reason we need to re-elect Trump. And as I say, I have to keep qualifying this because, uh, you know, Otherwise, people think, oh, you're just a never-Trumper, never. No, I was actually, I got Trump early. I made the case for Trump on the Glenn Beck show, and Glenn has never had me back on again and instead entertained fellows who were arguing the Patriots' case for assassinating Trump. That's how out of it conservative ink was. So I think re-elect Trump because Fauci hoodwinked him is a waste of time as a political platform. As to the midget virologist, yes, the two terms are related for this reason. I've written and talked this week on Rush and elsewhere about Michael Flynn's interminable case before the courts. Comey, Muller, Clapper, Brenner are actual spooks. They headed powerful secretive agencies that can kick your door in before dawn and have you dragged out of bed by paramilitaries in the full robocop. They're corrupt and given that they're attempting a coup against the legitimate government, they're actually treasonous. And yet, despite the sterling work of, for example, Sean Hannity's team every night, the only time most Americans hear about these guys is, as a commenter here pointed out the other day, when they're off on a new book tour or signing a new deal as a CNN analyst. If you can't close the deal on turning actual salaried, pensionable spooks into deep state Machiavellian plotters. The chances of turning a career virologist into the deepest spook of all are zero. Midget virologist is again a distillation of the political realities. You need a graspable narrative for the general and this isn't it. Now, CD's Australian neighbour in New South Wales, Kate Smythe, disagrees with me and Kate has been on this thing earlier than most. Uh, so I always pay attention to what she says, and Kate writes, a point on which I disagree is where the buck stops. 
and the role of Dr. Fauci and health bureaucrats. And it isn't the dodgy graphs. The problem isn't that, quote, Fauci lied and not enough people died, as many caricature conservatives are insisting, but that months beforehand, the WHO lied and Fauci complied. It was the inexcusably late response to a minuscule risk uh, so-called, that led to the full-blown epidemic and the economic destruction. This is in contrast with Taiwan, where experts implemented immediate proactive measures to avert a Wuhan-style event because they didn't trust China after SARS-1. Fauci, the darling of the left, delayed to a catastrophic degree, even as the alarm bells grew louder and he advised Trump to do the same. That's all true, Kate. One of the lessons we're learning too late is that just as the WHO is China's poodle, so most of the public health officials of Western nations are the WHO's poodles. The WHO is the PR version of the virus. It disseminated Politburo propaganda around the world and infected the public health bureaucracies uh, of almost every country. Not just Fauci and his gang in Washington, but, for example, Theresa Tam in Canada. Uh, I'm not saying Dr. Tam is actually a Chinese agent planted in Her Majesty's government, but I am saying that nothing she said or done would be inconsistent with being a Chinese agent, which is disturbing enough. Had we all instead followed Taiwan, one of the few entities on the planet that is not a member of the WHO and thus presumably doesn't even get the party line uh, coming out of the fax machine from Geneva every morning. Had we all followed Taiwan, which has had just six deaths from the coronavirus, literally uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, deaths and millions of cases of coronavirus would not have occurred. Um, Australia is now showing a rare bit of geopolitical backbone against Beijing and arguing for Taiwan's admission to the WHO. We would, in fact, be better just abolishing the WHO and moving Taiwan's public health bureaucracy into those swank Geneva offices. But yes, Kate, uh, the synchronicity uh, between the WHO and public health bureaucrats is worth exploring, uh, as I hope to get to next week. But again, the lesson is that this is part of the a, a basic Trump argument, an anti-globalist argument on, uh, uh, on, in fact, the reality of the new globalization. In the 90s, globalization, as a French a uh, former front French foreign minister once uh, said to me, globalization is basically a cover for Americanization. In fact, as we now know, globalization is a cover for Chinafication. Mark Stein's Last Call. Grim times, it helps to have a pick-you-up. So how about a good old century-old chin-up song?
While you've a Lucifer to light your fag, smile, boys, that's the style. That's Britannic English, boys. A fag is a cigarette and a Lucifer is a match. And that was Robert Mandel with the Robert Mandel Chorus and the Robert Mandel Orchestra, a name that takes me way back. Robert was a precocious lad born in New York and on the stage and on the airwaves by eight years old. He played Tad Lincoln, Abe's youngest son, opposite Vincent Price as the ill-fated president on the radio, and he was on Broadway with Gertrude Lawrence in Lady in the Dark, all before he went to college. And then, at college, he tried conducting. And for a performance of On the Town, the composer himself, Leonard Bernstein, showed up and was impressed enough to tutor Robert for three years and then hire him as his assistant on the CBS series Omnibus. And then somewhere along the way, Robert Mandel decided to move to England and found a very lucrative niche as the conductor of family orchestral concerts up and down the land with full orchestra, full chorus and the Melocrino strings. One of my earliest big-time ventures in the UK was as the announcer of one of Mr. Mandel's concerts. I wasn't very good, and as I recall, he didn't much care for my intro, uh, walking out on stage to bask in the applause and then turning sideways to flash me an enigmatic semi-glare I couldn't quite interpret. But I packed up my troubles in my metaphorical kit bag and smiled, 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 and the show went on. Here's Robert Mandel's first big West End show conducting a late entry in the Brickus and Newley catalogue at the Prince of Wales Theatre in 1972 with Anthony Newley and a take-home tune that's almost too catchy. Seems to me you're either out or you're in You lose or you win in these sad old glad old days Knows which is which anyways We're living on time We're having to borrow No one knows if we will live to see tomorrow Nevertheless, I guess we gotta confess These are the good old bad old days We're living on time, we're having to borrow no one knows if we will live to see tomorrow. There's a song for the age. Anthony Newley in the show. He wrote with Leslie Brickus, The Good Old Bad Old Days, conducted by Robert Mandel, dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 90. While Robert Mandel was crossing the Atlantic from west to east, uh, John Rowlands was crossing the Atlantic from east to west. Rowlands was born in Liverpool and played football for Mansfield Town, Torquay United, Crew Alexandra, the San Jose Earthquakes, the Oakland Stompers, the Tulsa Roughnecks. Wait a minute, wait a minute. The Oakland Stompers, the Tulsa Roughnecks? What kind of names are those for footy clubs? Well, in the mid-70s, Rowlands was one of many British footballers tempted by the North American Soccer League. And one of the particular thrills of playing for a club that's brand new rather than a century old is that you've got a sporting chance of scoring their very first goal. We moved over here in the, in the early 70s with him um, when he retired from, from football in England, soccer. Um, he came over, he played for the San Jose Earthquakes. Davy Kemp, crossing ball in front. Rollins and Charlie. Rollins open He played for the Seattle Sounders. Um, he actually scored the first goal. 
for the Seattle Sounders in the NASL. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 73, transatlantic footballer John Rollins. Don't you realise we're living to die? I'm happy to say in the good old bad old days. Taking the breaks and making mistakes in the good old bad old Sometimes there is no magic moment, like the first goal for the Seattle Sounders. Sometimes you're just the guy who was there. Today the Marathon of Rome is just as much a legend as that of the soldier Philippides who ran the 42 kilometres from Marathon to Athens and died after gasping out the news of victory. Francesco Baroni was the hometown lad. At the 1960 Olympics in Rome, a great long-distance runner, he knew those streets. host of men of all nations await the start under the raised hand of Marcus Aurelius. They're off. Running as if it were a sprint and not a marathon. They have 42 kilometers and 195 meters to go. Nearly 26 and a half miles. But the 1960 marathon was one of those Olympic fairy tales that comes along every once in a while. The winner turned out to be Abebe Bikila of the Imperial Bodyguard in Haile Selassie's Ethiopia. He ran those Rome Autostrada barefoot and became the first black African Olympic gold medalist. His name is on every lip. A magnificent effort. Two hours, 15 minutes, 16.2 seconds. The Emperor will surely promote him for this. And in the uproar and enthusiasm, no one paid much attention to the fellows coming in behind. But Francesco Peroni was there, a product of the Gruppo Sportivo Flam Oro, the sports group of the Italian police. He ran his best and he had a lifetime of memories. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus, at the age of 89, long-distance runner Francesco Peroni. Some people say they long for the old days to take them way back when. I'd sooner stay right here with the gold days than go through that again. Just a few weeks ago, we reported the death of a great Japanese funny man, Ken Shimura. That's Ken Shimura playing opposite Kumiko Oke. He succumbed to the kiss of the coronavirus in March. In April, the virus returned to take his leading lady in that sketch. Miss Oke had an enviable Japanese media career, dramatic actress, television presenter, the host of the variety show Renzo Game and the morning show Hanamaru Market, a voice of the Pokemon cartoons and the star of a long-running ad for Family Fresh Liquid Soap. これはもうファミリーフレッシュ様々でして後片付けは断然これ手に優しいのライムの香りもフレッシュなのです手に優しいファミリーフレッシュ
dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 63, media personality Kumiko Oke. We're living on time, we're having to borrow. No one knows if we will live to see tomorrow. People will say when they look back at today, those were the good old, the good old bad old days. La, 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 I once asked Leslie Brickus about the good old bad old days. Oh, he said it was a simple little story about life, death, good, evil, man, God and the devil encompassing the entirety of world history. So nothing pretentious about it in the least, said Leslie. Well, it sort of fits our time. We have movies and music and more coming up at Stein Online over the weekend. Do check it out. And for our listeners in West London, the police have cleared the streets of string quartets... But here, Raphael's colleagues in the Allegri Quartet play on, this time the third Shostakovich Quartet, presumably also banned in Bayswater. Stay safe, stay free, stay strong. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. reserved.